So uh, obviously what, what I wanted to uh, reach out to you and talk to you about would be uh, Postal. Sure. Uh, I'm a big fan, by the way. We've uh, I'm sure you don't remember, we've met a couple of times briefly um, back when you, you and Matt first started. Um, I think it was a Long Beach show. Long Beach. Okay, right on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I quite, that was a long time ago, but yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I sort of remember, yeah. And then um, uh, we talked again just very, very briefly at the next year's Long Beach show. Um, yeah, because uh, Jason and I, through uh, the comic source, we've been, we're, we're really big fans of, uh, of Top Cow and especially books like Postal. Oh, right on. Well, great. So, um, you know, it's, it's such a great book. Uh, I know you guys have been working really hard on it. Uh, you, you know, obviously, um, it's between you and you and Matt came up with it, correct? Yeah. So the the way it happened um, was, I so I've been doing screenwriting for a while. I you know I, I started writing comics about ten years ago, but no one knows that because you know no one really paid attention. But I was writing. You know, I just did a few things here, a single issue of this, a short story here, um, all of that. And then I went and started screenwriting. Sold a few screenplays, uh, but frankly, because it just gave me um, a good amount of money that I could keep in the bank and do other things with. So I did that for a little bit. Then I met with Matt and said I wanted to write a comic book. Matt shared this concept he had with me about this town and it was full of criminals and there was a mailman, and the mailman had Asperger's. They didn't really know what the story story was going to be. So I took those concepts, I sat with them for that evening, came back to them with a couple pages of, well, you know, this is how I think it works, and this is how we can tell stories here, and this is what the first arc of this would be. And he liked it and said, yeah, go ahead. So for the uh, first arc, I, well, maybe first or second arc, uh, first two arcs, you know, I was kind of talking to him about what I was going to do, you know, writing scripts, showing into him, and he would say, you know, uh, maybe not this, do this instead, blah, blah, blah. So that's how it sort of started. And then after the second arc, he just said, yeah, you got this. Just do, do what you want to do. Well, how far along did you guys uh, plan the book out? Uh, because uh, I noticed quite quickly when, when the cover was released for 13, I knew I recognized mm-hmm. the back of that the back of that guy's neck from the first issue. Right. Well, you know, I always think in terms of ongoing. I do, unless I'm deliberately doing a miniseries, I'm always thinking about things with a forever timeline, basically. And I have an idea of how every story will eventually end, but I don't necessarily know what issue that's going to happen. You know, so... I will plot things out pretty far in advance, but I might not always do them because you don't know if you're going to have the ability to pay off that thing that you set up when you thought you'd be able to pay it off. So what happens is you end up developing a very large journal of ideas, character arcs, things to explore, and then you go back to it as you start planning out your scripting and you say, oh, well, now I can do this thing here, or now I can do this thing here. And so I'm setting up a lot of things in, in the book, and hopefully I can get to resolving all of them the way that I had intended when I set them up. It's just a matter of time. So it's a very organic, evolutionary process, really. But, yeah, I do tend to think about things long-term. You know, with Postal, with Romulus, with everything that I'm doing, I do think about things like, okay, this would be a great thing for year two of the book. This would be a great thing for year three of the book. So that's the the broad sense of my thinking. But, yeah, I never try to um, – I never limit myself with something and say, okay, this – it's said to be an ongoing, but I'm really going to think about it in terms of six issues. Because then I think readers can feel that there's not quite enough story there. And the most important thing for me with readers is that readers feel like they're picking up a book with my name on it, and they're diving into a world that has endless horizons of possibility. 
So that's something that I'm always keeping in mind when I'm plotting and planning out my arcs and my year structure and all that. So as far as uh, specifically how many issues I'll be doing, I don't really know. I mean, we're, we're, we're moving forward. You know, I know that we're definitely going to do at least 24, but that doesn't mean that we're going to end at 24. It just means that we're definitely going to do 24. And I think we'll see where we are with readership and interest when we arrive at that place. If the readership is still there and the interest is still there, then we'll continue to move forward. Well, you know, that's definitely something I would look forward to. Um, talking about developing your story, um, I want to ask you about how you, how you go about developing so many complex characters and how do you go about deciding how much of that character you're giving us at a time? Because, I mean, you have characters... Just Mark alone, I mean, uh, just so so much to, to look into, whether it's his loyalty to his mom, uh, his his uh, brief interactions with his father, his Asperger's syndrome uh, with Maggie. Um, how do you, and then you have Laura, Laura uh, the mayor, who that's, that is, uh, that's another character with, with a very, very uh, interesting background, and such a strong, she has to be such a strong character due to the fact that she's the mayor of, of Eden. And, I mean, I can go on with, with uh, Maggie, uh, definitely Molly, uh, and even even to go as far as Molly's dad, that John Schultz, who, who happens to make sure this is all put together from the outside. Uh, how do you go about uh, balancing how, how much of each character we get because there's, there's just so much that that you can uh, that you you know you can give readers. Well, that's a, a very natural process for me. Before I write any story, I think a lot about the characters. So I'll do five or six pages of prose about every character for myself, and develop sometimes a hundred-page source document with all of my thoughts about who these people are, where they come from, what they want, what they have, what they need, what they're scared of, so that they become real people for me. Then when it comes to the writing of the story, I just think about what they would do. Uh, I know them so well that they're like living people. So if a problem gets introduced into Eden, the town at the center of Postal, I just think about, well, what would Mark do? What would Laura do? What would Maggie do? You know, and how would the characters react to one another, too, right? So the, the key for me is develop your characters well enough that they feel like people. You know, that, then you're not uh, forcing yourself to figure out, well, how do I balance this out or how do I bring this character into it? A lot of that will happen automatically if you do the, the great work of figuring out who these characters are in detail before you go into scripting. So, in, in talking about your characters, from from uh, you said you uh, you develop a lot of your arts from from the beginning. How did how did the character of Rowan come along? Oh well, Rowan is based on a person I really know. Uh, my friend of mine from grade school became a skinhead. He joined the Aryan Brotherhood. He went to prison for a bit. Then he came out, and he was essentially a white supremacist. I didn't know this. I'd gone back to St. Louis, Missouri, where I'm from, and I, I saw him just on the street. We were in a, in a, a store and saw him there. and was like, whoa, he's got sandwiches on him. What's up with all of this? So I, he was with a bunch of skinheads there, too. I didn't want to end this, so I didn't really talk to him there. But I reached out to his mom and his mom, and I asked her if she would put me in contact with him, and we could go out and have a beer and just talk about it. So we, you know, went out kind of outside of St. Louis, so nobody would really see him. And we just sat down and had a beer and had a conversation about how he got from the person I knew to the person he was. And he told me a lot of interesting things. It for me, it was a little bit of a sad story, a tragic story, because he was a good kid. And he made a couple mistakes, got sent to jail, and came out, I think, worse than he went in. But he had to develop this ideology in order to survive, because prison's a hard place. 
So that survival mechanism that he needed to develop his prison stayed with him into the real world. I thought this was an excellent way in to a story about redemption. And there are a few things in society that we think people can't redeem themselves out of. One of them is being a violent rapist. You know, you can steal a car and then no longer be a thief. You can commit credit card fraud and forgive your ways. If you're a violent racist, especially if you've gone to prison for a violent crime, a violent hate crime, then you might be carrying that with you the rest of your life. And it might be something that society will never truly forgive you for. And I wanted to explore that in Postal because Postal is ultimately a story about the difficult path to redemption for some of the quote-unquote most irredeemable people we have in society. So I felt like that would be a really interesting way to, to tell a story. And frankly, me being a black writer, I felt like I would have a bit more leeway, honestly, to explore those things in a dimensional way because no one would say I was a racist by doing it. So I could invest this racist, essentially, with a lot of human qualities and explore the roots of that. How does someone form that worldview? Why do they form that worldview? What matters to them? What's frightening them about the world to drive them towards so much hate? You see, whenever you see anger, you're, you're seeing the symptom of fear. All anger is based on fear. We're never angry if we're not afraid. So when I, when I look at people that are driven by hatred, my first instinct is to say to myself, well, why are they so afraid? What's that fear? What's it all about? Where's that come from? Let's explore that. And that's how Rowan came to be. So by far, issue 13 of Postal has to be my favorite. And that's, and that's hard to top because issue 12 with Mark, uh, the, the ending of that arc was, was phenomenal. Um, oh, thank you. Uh, you know, like I said, so many complex characters. Um, now going forward, we see talking about characters redeeming themselves. I found it kind of uh, ironic that um, most of the town members aren't looking to help Rowan out. They're, they see the tattoos on his, on his body, and they immediately judge him for what they assume he is. And right. um, I'm very interested, interested to see how that develops. Uh, but like you yeah, were saying... Well, yeah, people judge people, right? We judge people... You know, everyone wants to feel better than somebody else. Yes. And even these, these reformed criminals, these fugitives, some of them, that are in Eden, they want to feel better than somebody. And Rowan gives them the ability to feel better than someone. So that they don't feel like they are the most forsaken people in society. So Rowan walks around knowing that he's this pariah. He knows he's an outcast. And he sort of feels like he deserves it. You know, he's a man that's, that's in a lot of ways uh, living in hell. But he feels like he deserves hell. And he's come to terms with that, almost like this is his penance. And I wanted to uh, engage that and show how some of the characters in the town will suffer with him, even if they don't agree with his point of view, even if they don't agree with what he did that no one is, is truly alone in the world, you know, and no matter how alone and desperate and lost we can feel, there are other people that are going through that that can understand who we are. And Rowan will come to discover that there are people that will sympathize with him, uh, empathize with him, and they may not agree with, with him, and they might not forgive him for what he did, but that doesn't mean that they think that he should suffer alone. Now, one last question about Rowan that I wanted to ask you is uh, mm -hmm. we, when Abner's men are attacking him at, at, the, at the house outside of town, how did you go about developing uh, that letter that he writes to, to the young man's mom that he, that he uh, dragged? Uh, because that oh, was, well. That was deep. Yeah, well, what I, I, so some comic books have what I would call action. And action is physical confrontation without real emotional consequence, which can still be entertaining, right? Like when we see Captain America fight Hydra soldiers, 
we're not really thinking about the consequence upon the Hydra soldiers, right? We're just watching the action sequence or reading the action sequence, and it's great. In Pulpo, we don't really have action. We have violence. And violence always has an emotional consequence. There's always an additional element uh, to violence. There's always an aftermath to violence. So the letter for me was a way to define the emotional space of what was happening with the action. So you weren't just watching guys try to shoot each other in a house, which would get pretty boring. Instead, you were watching that while you were hearing Rowan's desperate need to find forgiveness, to find purpose, to make some philosophical and spiritual balance out of the choices he's made. So the letter helps us understand more of the emotional consequence of the violence that we're watching and the futility of violence, ultimately. I don't think you can solve problems with violence. I think that violence oftentimes begets more violence. So hopefully the reader, when they read that sequence, they're not just watching Rowan fight these Aryan Brotherhood guys. They're thinking about the grander implications of violence itself and how those that participate in violence probably all pay a price. And uh, that should be present, I think, in a book as like Pulpal is. It's a grounded story. It's not mythology. Not like Romulus is, for instance. Romulus is a very mythological story about mythological hero and all that. This is more of a grounded story about real world and stuff and uh, the small victories and defeats that we have every day. So I just wanted to use the letter as a way to contextualize that sequence so the reader could think about those things in direct contrast to each other. Well, speaking of violent, violence, um, I want to ask you about uh, another very interesting character, uh, Molly Schultz. What is her role in Eden, especially now? That oh, well, you know, in a lot of ways, Eden is analogous to the Garden of Eden, right? It, it, it's an enclosed place that has its own laws that's ruled by uh, by someone that has a measure of power over everything that takes place within it. And every Garden of Eden needs a serpent, right? So Mo- Molly, for me, is the serpent that comes into the garden. You know, she is the character who's brilliant, who's beautiful, who is, is tempting, not necessarily in, in just a physical or sexual way, but in an in a ethical way, in a, in a psychological way. And I thought that Mark needed someone in his life that supported all of the things that he's afraid of within himself. And so Molly is, if if Maggie likes the Mark that could be, right, the hero that Mark could be, Molly is infatuated with the villain that she thinks Mark could be. So that puts Mark in between these two very strong women uh, who are pulling him in different directions while Laura is sort of watching this all happen and deciding how she's going to interject. So Molly is a really uh, fun character to write. I like her very much. I like what she does to the book. Um, and we're going to see uh, her deep influence on, on Mark and the world of Pulsal and the arcs to come. Uh, she's going to become more and more centerpiece as the story moves forward. Yeah, I believe you guys have done, you've done a great job at organically growing her character. Because oh, thank uh, you. You know, the, the sequence in issue 12 at the end was amazing, where, where she kind of, I guess, I think she had been up to, underestimating Mark a little bit up to that point. She and had. Then, she had. And now at uh, 14, uh, she seems to have taken a different approach, and it, it kind of startled Mark. Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, Mark, Mark isn't the person that shows everything that's going on with him all the time. But he has all these churning forces within him, and people are constantly underestimating him. So there are times in the story when you'll realize that Mark has a whole world inside of him that you hadn't explored uh, before. Oh, can you do me a favor? You know, a lot of people in, in, in the story underestimate Mark. Uh, and Mark is a guy that, because Asperger's uh, reduces his emotion, emotional display, right? He doesn't display emotion uh, the way that we, we normally expect someone to. 
And he also doesn't read emotion on people the way that we would expect someone to read it. People underestimate him, and they take his silence as uh, a lack of feeling or a lack of an opinion and or a lack of will. And underneath Mark's silence is a, a raging storm uh, of thoughts and emotions and desires and wants and needs. So when certain crises appear within the story of Postal, Mark demonstrates the feelings he has through doing. Rather than speaking it or emoting, Mark displays emotions by action. And those actions he takes oftentimes surprise the people around him because they didn't know that he had the potential to do what he's doing. So do you think uh, do you think his mom knows his potential? Or do you think she also maybe underestimates him a little bit? Well, Lawrence is scared that Mark's going to turn into something that's closer to his father than, than to her. So Laura's primary fear is Mark is going to become a man like his father. And she has raised him very close to her and kept him in very specific roles within Eden to protect him from that possibility. So as much as Laura wants her son to find his own power, to become his own man, she's also terrified of the man he might become. And that's the core of their relationship. Now, now you bring up his mom, and in issue 14, the, the first few pages, we see a little bit of that interaction of her past with Isaac. Um, right. Do you have anything more? Uh, can you tell me a little bit more what you guys have planned to maybe show us later about their past? Sure, yes. We're going to deal more with the days before Eden with Laura and Isaac and seeing the nature of their relationship. Now, Laura in the world of Postal is this very powerful, uh, wise, experienced, and severe woman who runs this town. But she wasn't always that way. When she was with Mark's father, he was the one that was in control. Uh, he was this charismatic, violent criminal that was able to build a cult-like environment around him. So Laura escaped uh, Isaac, that's Mark's father, uh, Isaac's world by essentially turning on him and killing him, or so she thought. So the those days where Laura wasn't in control, where Laura didn't have agency, where Laura felt that she was eclipsed by this this individual, we're going to explore that a bit more because those are the memories that she's trying to destroy with the actions that she's taking now. She's always worried that she's never quite got out from under Isaac's spell, really. And sometimes her severity is a way to demonstrate to herself that she's still in control. Well, no doubt. I am sure that um, with, with as many great characters that you have uh, you have on the book, uh, you guys have quite a bit planned going forward. Uh, would that be correct? Yeah, we do. I, I've spoken to Matt extensively about where I want to go with the book, and he's very supportive of it. Uh, we've got some other things that we want to explore for sure. You know, We've got an FBI agent who's gone rogue to investigate the town. We want to bring Mark's father back into the story in some way. And we also want to chart Mark's progress as he starts to get more and more involved in not just delivering the mail and solving the occasional problems, but also becoming more of a principal actor in the way the town operates. So all of those things are going to get uh, wrestled with through the arcs uh, going forward. Um, now, ultimately, the story is about how you protect a kingdom. And sometimes the threats to the kingdom are the ones on the other side of the wall. Sometimes the threats to the kingdom are the ones that live inside of the kingdom itself. And all of those things will affect not only the people that live in Eden, but the people that try to keep Eden under control. Uh, and the big question that, that lives across Postal is, does the end justify the means? 
And if it doesn't, what then? Well, no doubt I look forward to those uh, those upcoming arcs. arcs. Uh, let me ask you, um, the, the book has amazing writing. Uh, it also has artwork by Isaac Goodhart. How, how do you feel Isaac's been doing on your book? Well, Isaac's brilliant. See, the, for me, and every writer is different. You know, every writer looks for different things in artists. For me, I work best with artists that can show human interaction in a nuanced way that aren't extreme all the time, but can be extreme when necessary. So, you know, the the greatest thing for me in working with Isaac is I can write any kind of moment I want, and I know he can do it. I can write something very intimate, something that feels very small, something that's very subtle. I know he can do that. I can also write something that's histrionic and very violent and, uh, um, you know, exaggerated and extreme, and I know he can do that too. So Isaac has this kaleidoscope of emotional range within his artwork that lets me as a writer feel like I can write anything that I need to write in order to service the story. So working with him has been a real honor. I mean, it's been uh, extraordinary watching him tell the story because he tells the story as much as I tell the story. You know, he's as much a creator of these characters as I am. Uh, and watching him turn these words I'm putting on a piece of paper into these images that carried far more emotional power than my words ever could is, is brilliant. You know, I, I'm, you know, I just one of those guys, I want to work with him for a long time on a great many things. Uh, we've got uh, another project we're talking about getting together. I can't really talk about the details of that, but we're really excited about that. And so far, it's been brilliant working with him. You know, when you, when you work on a book with an artist, it's a lot like a marriage. You know, you are in bed with this person, so to speak. Uh, and, you know, you've got to make sure that the personalities blend and that you see the world uh, in the same way, the world of the story in the same way. And you've got to work with each other. You know, if an artist is fighting a writer and a writer is fighting an artist, you're going to read that in the book. It's not going to work. Mm-hmm. With Isaac, I've got very, very lucky because I never have to fight him at all. And I don't think he has to fight me. I, I think that we, we work in sync. And I, and I often talk to him about choices I'm going to make, things I'm going to do, too, like, I ask him, well, what would you like to draw or what, what character are you really interested in? And I'll factor that stuff into the art, too. Um, I, I sort of I use his interest as a guide when I start doing my plotting. And sometimes opportunities that I wouldn't even see if I was just alone with a Word document will uh, show themselves when I see some of his sketches or what, what he's thinking. And I'll say, oh, you know what? That, that's great. Let's do that. You know, that, that notion you have, that image you want to draw. Yeah, 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 let's do that and let's make that work. Uh, so I've, I've loved the process working with Isaac. I mean, frankly, on a book like this that is so absent of the normal comic book tricks, you know, we don't have supervillains, we don't have big fight scenes, you know, we don't have these marquee 50-year characters that are working with, work with people, we work with people who've made choices and the choices have consequences. It's such difficult work that if Isaac wasn't the artist that he was and uh, I didn't feel so taken care of by his art when I, when I send the script in, it, it would be impossible, I think, to do, to do this project. And it's, it's remarkable because he and I did not know each other going into this. You know, he had won a, uh, a talent competition at Top Cow and he was on the market for a book, I was coming in to start writing comics and taking it very seriously. So Matt said, hey, what do you think about this, this guy, Isaac Clark? And I saw it, and I was like, wow, this is pretty good. I mean, it feels very human. These, these, these drawings feel like people. So that really spoke to me. And he's such a genuine, warm, generous person. I mean, Isaac Goodhart, he earns his last name. He's probably <laughs> one of the best human beings you're going to meet on the planet. You know, and I, I love this guy to death. Um, so that is the best part. I mean, working with Isaac is, is well, the, I think actually the best part of Postal is getting reactions from readers because those have been great. So getting, you know, the responses from readers that have read the book and responded to it, I mean, that's amazing to 
have someone that you've never met read your work and have an emotional reaction to it and share it with you, I mean, there's no better feeling in the world. But the second best part of Postal has been working with Isaac. You know, I think Isaac is a guy that has a strong voice. He's going to be a serious uh, contributor to comics culture for a long time. And I hope to be able to do, you know, many more projects with him uh, over the course of my career. Yeah, over, overall, it's a solid book. Um, I, I know I have been very happy with it. I know... Oh, oh, let me just good. give you... Special shout-out to K. Michael Russell, who is doing the colors. He's been doing the colors, uh, gosh, I think since issue eight, maybe, he's been doing the colors. No, no, I think he started with 13, in fact. Yeah, I think, I think Michael started with 13. So K. Michael Russell is doing the colors now. He started with 13, and he's brilliant. He's so good. So when his colors hit Isaac's artwork, it makes me feel like, well, hell, I can write anything. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is, this is going to be great. This is all great. It's such a gift having him on the book, uh, and the way he and Isaac work together is brilliant. I really couldn't be happier with the greatest team. Um, Troy uh, Petery does the letters for the book. And in a book like this, where it's a lot of people talking to each other a lot of the time, letters are very important. They help pace the reader through the experience. And, Troy's letters are also also great. I mean, I, I I couldn't think of three people between Troy and 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 K. Michael Russell and Isaac Goodhart uh, that a writer you know would want to work with more. You know, I mean, the, this these visualists, these visual storytellers are the best gifts you could have as a writer. And uh, I'm very very proud of of them and all the work that they've done. And it forces me to be as good as I can be to make sure that they're getting scripts that live up to their ability. Well, well, let me ask you this then. With when you turn in your writing over to the artist, is there any sequence or or a group of panels that maybe blew you away more than more than any other section? Oh well, you know, um, there there are. Yeah, I think you know some some of the obvious stuff is there, uh, like the the action sequence with Rowan in the house that Isaac did. Uh, I thought that was great. It had the intensity and the horror of everything. thought he portrayed that stuff really, really well. But I also think that Isaac does a brilliant job in the quiet character. You know, the, sometimes we'll just be a panel of, of Mark uh, and the way he's used composition, the way he's used gesture. It just says so much. And many times I will delete some of my letters when I see his artwork. Wow. I'll say, oh, yeah, I don't need, we don't need that dialogue there. You know, a lot of my, my lettering tasks when I see the artwork is me just cutting lines out because I realize Isaac and, and K. Michael are doing as much as I was, even more. So the words are just getting in the way. So a lot of my, my lettering tasks, my corrections, if you will, are corrections against my own writing and cutting down <laughs> some of my words, right? Because I don't, we don't need that many words, you know? Um, so that's, that's more of a constant thing rather than one single sequence that, that blows me away uh, necessarily. Um, there's also some panels of Laura he did in issue 14. I think issue 14 is on stand right now. And there's some panels of Laura that he's drawn where she just looks so cool. You know, she's just so cool. She's still, she like this, this sharp, intelligent, um, you can you can read her intelligence in this drawing, uh, and and that's great. You know, I mean, all artists can't do that. You know, you, you, there's a lot of artists out there that don't really know how to make a character look like they're thinking, and it's a small thing, right? It's, it seems like an obvious thing, but it's not something that a lot of artists can do. And Isaac is extraordinarily good at drawing characters who are in emotional places that are thinking through some things, and you can feel that. And that makes the experience of the book better for readers. Yeah, I definitely noticed that about Laura um, in issue 14. That's actually what prompted me to ask you a little bit more if we were going to get a little bit more uh, background to her because I did notice she looks a little different than, than what I've seen seen her before, uh, especially now that she has to plot a war against uh, Abner. Um, right, right. So... Um, 
between this and, and Eden Eden's fall, when when does this take? What's the timeline here? Is this post Eden's war? Eden's fall. I'm sorry. I apologize. Or is it this well, right Eden's fall? Eden's fall takes place between the arc before this one and this one. So let's just say Eden's fall takes place before issue thirteen. Okay. Yeah, that's correct because that's at the end of at the end of uh, of the times when we see him arrive at at Eden to to right. Uh, right. Um, so for postal fans, postal fans can consider Eden's fall sort of the uh, the the secret arc that's happening between issues twelve and uh, thirteen. Okay, great. And uh, think about it like that. Yeah. And and how is that? How how is it working with the characters from the, the tithe and as well as uh, Think Tank? Well, it's funny, you know, Mark. Uh, I'm sorry, Mark, Matt. Matt came to me and said, "Hey, what do you think about an event that brings Think Tank to tithe and Postal together?" And I said, "Oh, that you know that could be kind of interesting." And then he said, "Well, I have I have an idea for a story. Would you mind scripting the story because I like the way you write scripts?" And uh, I said, well, yeah, sure, I can do that. But I'd never written those characters from Think Tank or The Tide before. So I had to brush up on all of that. I mean, I'd read all the issues before because, you know, I, I, I look at all the story stuff happening at Top Cow. But I hadn't really read them in terms of executing them myself. So I had to you know, read Think Tank, read The Tide as someone who was going to write these people. Excuse me. And then... uh try to do it. And it was challenging at first. Uh, I went through a couple drafts before I felt like I had the voices and the spirit of those characters. And then once I did, it was easier. Now, the thing about Matt is, and Matt's kind of a humble guy when it comes to creativity. He won't blow his own horn, so I'm going to toot the horn a little bit here. Uh, Matt creates uh, really interesting dynamics in the stories, and he also thinks about characters in an interesting way. And they're distinctive. So it's not difficult once you start applying, you know, your creative mind to it to engage these characters together because they are very distinct. You know, David Lauren from Think Tank is very different uh, than the FBI agent from the Tide. But the, the FBI agent from the Tide, you know, Dwayne and James, they're very different from each other. So you do have these characters that have distinct personality traits, and that makes it easier to put them all in the same story. But the scarier thing whenever you're writing dialogue for other people's characters is you want to make sure you're doing it right, right? <laughs> so, yeah. You know, so it, it was with a little little fear that I would turn those scripts <laughs> in because I'm like, I hope I'm doing this the way you like it. You know, this is what was in my head. You know, and, and luckily uh, for me, Matt's been very accommodating and generous uh, about that. And you know, for, like for David Lauren and Think Tank, he'll give me a note or two about science or get the science right, you know, here and there, and I'll fix that and do all that. But uh, I think I've managed to do a pretty good job of carrying those characters' voices through the fall um, while being able to take Matt's uh, plot and filter it through my point of view, basically. Yeah, that that whole science section of Think Tank is, is ridiculous anyway. <laughs> it's deep. It's like deep and crazy. You know, I... Uh, uh, well, Neil, Matt's a physicist. I mean, he doesn't, like, well, I don't think he, he has physics experiments at his house. But Matt has a background in physics. Uh, I think he might be, you know, he can have a, a master in physics or something, master's in physics or something. I don't, point of it is, Matt knows a lot about science. You know, Matt is, Matt's a guy that you could drop off on Mars and he could find a way to survive. <laughs> you know? and so, so, there are, you know, uh, if you're going to pick a fight with Matt Hawkins, don't do it around science. You're probably going to lose. <laughs> so, yeah, especially if he has he, around. Oh, yeah. So when Matt tells me, like, the science on this thing was in track, I'm just like, yep, I believe you. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, I don't even argue. You got, you got it. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, when, when he had – I spoke with him a few times at other shows, and he told me that all three of these books were going to cross over. I was very excited. Um, yeah. I noticed um, Atilio Rojo is the one doing the art. He, he's got a similar style to Isaac, but definitely a little bit different. Uh, and, then, and also um, Michael Russell is also doing the colors on this one. 
Uh, so it, it's it's got beautiful artwork as well. Well, you know, funny. Um, uh, Michael's not actually doing Colors in Eden's Fall. I don't know exactly how he wound up getting the color credit for that. I was just talking to Michael yesterday about it. It's funny. So Atilio does his own colors. Uh, oh, so we're going to... Yeah, we're going to fix that with the second issue and third issue. We're not, you know, you're not going to see Michael's name on there anymore. Uh, Atilio does his own pencils, inks, and colors. He's like a total package problem. I think it's because maybe somewhere uh, down the process, because they're so used to the postal scene, they assume it's the same folks. But, yeah, Atilio does his pencils and inks and his colors uh, all on his own. And he is uh, an equally talented artist and very, very expressive. Which is great because Eden's Fall is more of a action thriller than I would say Postal is. So Postal has more of a Cormac McCarthy, No Country for Old Men kind of feel. When there's violence, but it's a character story, it's moody, it's that atmosphere. Achilleo is more of an action thriller guy. So when Achilleo works on Eden's Fall, it's a bit more like a Michael Mann movie or something. You know, it has a bit more of that straight crime thriller feel. Mm-hmm. Um, almost, almost feels like you're, you're walking in the shadow of Ed Brubaker uh, or Rick Remender or something when you're, when you're working on something like Atilio. Uh, but Atilio is so vivid in his artwork that it helps me push those things forward. I mean, there's some, there's some moments in Eden's Fall, especially in issue two and three, that are pretty stark. And and uh, uh, the the way he depicts violence uh, in action in the book is is pretty strong, um, and I think a lot of readers will be like, "Whoa, that melted my face! I did not expect my face to melt when I read a comic book, but my face just melted." So uh, I thought he was great, uh, and he's and he's another really nice guy, great spirit, you know, has limitless energy. I don't know how he gets this artwork done as fast as he does, but he does, and it's it's amazing. Well, you know, it's great to hear that you're surrounded by such great teams over at Top Cow. Definitely, that's the key. The key to writing comics is surround yourself with a good artist and don't write anything bad. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you don't do there that. There you go. <laughs> that's, that's, okay. that's that's how you want. You want to you want to be a, a great comic book writer. Surround yourself with great artists and write nothing bad. <laughs> or more specifically, surround yourself with great artists and write things they like to draw. <laughs> right? That's my pro tip. Every interview I try to give a pro tip, here's my pro tip. Pro tip for writers out there, don't force your comic book artists to draw things they don't want to draw. <laughs> That's the, best, the best question you can ask your artistic collaborator is, what do you not like drawing? <laughs> and you use that. Use that. Sometimes you gotta do that stuff. But you know, it's it's always good to know uh, ahead of time. Like, oh, okay. Let me not make this a book full of cityscapes, for instance. <laughs> if you don't like to draw cityscapes, or uh, if, if a character, if, if an artist likes to draw female characters, make sure you have good female characters in your story so they can do that design work and all that. Um, really important. So, pro tip, guys. Well, after artists. What do they not we'll like to draw? We'll definitely use that as a, as a PA for, for writers that way. Maybe right on. More, more, book, more good books. Sure. <laughs> uh, well, you know what? I think I've taken up enough of your time as it is. So, uh, you know what? Thanks for, uh, thanks for letting me talk to you about this book, uh, not, not just as, you know, as an interview for LRM Online, but also as a fan because uh, – the last show I went to, I, I kind of pushed it on one of my friends that was with me. And he was oh, like, right on. Is this the one you're talking about? Yeah, definitely. He's like, all right, well, here's the first volume. Here's the second one. Hey, Dylan, do you have a third? Yeah, okay, great. He's going to take all three of them. Well, so, that's great. Well, tell him to hit me up on Twitter or something. I love hearing from people who read the book. Oh, right. Uh, and, yeah, yeah it's at Brian Everhill. Have him, have him holler at me. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, he happens to be a, a sheriff's office, uh, works for the sheriff's department. So oh, that's great. Yeah, that's great. Uh, um, I, yeah, that's that's awesome. I'd love I'd love to hear from from them. Just have them hit me up on Facebook or or Twitter or whatever. I'd love to chat. Uh, and you know, let's do this again when uh, Rondelis comes out uh, in October. I'd love to talk to you about. Wow, that. all right. You read my mind. I was gonna I was gonna ask you maybe we get we'll talk about it. Uh, Rondelis when it comes out, I was reading a little bit about yeah. it. Yeah. 
little earlier. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, we can definitely do uh, another another interview there and talk about that because I've got tons of things to say about that too. I can't say them now because the book's not out yet, but by the time the book is out, I can get to talking. Great. Um, are you by chance you going to be at Long Beach? Probably. Yeah. I mean, I'm. Def- I don't know if we're going to have an official official presence there or or what. I'm I'm going to go. So. Uh, I'll definitely be there in some capacity. I don't know if Hot Cow is going to be there with a the booth. I'm not sure. Probably. Let me check it yeah. out. Um, yeah, I talked to Dylan, and he said, he said you guys are going to go have a booth. Oh, yeah. Well, if, 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 we're, if we're boothing up, then I'm going to be there for sure. But, yeah, because I, I think uh, right now you guys are promoting also uh, Eclipse coming out. Yeah. Yeah, so, Eclipse is a great book. Um, Zach, Zach Kaplan. Uh, writes that book, and Giovanni, Giovanni Quintano does the art for that, and that's it's awesome. So definitely uh, people should check that book out, too. It's great sci-fi, um, good sci-fi, murder mystery, uh, about a world where the sun has kind of gone angry, and now people can't go out in the daylight anymore except this killer that for some reason is able to travel in the sunlight and murder <clears throat> people. And so they got to catch them. It's great. It's cool. Uh, it's like David Fincher's Seven meets Danny Boyle's Sunshine. People should yeah. definitely check that one out. Yeah, I'm, I'm writing a uh, preview for it. Uh, you guys were able to, Top Cow was able to get me an advanced copy of it. Awesome. And, uh, yeah, that, um, have you got to read the first issue yet? Oh yeah, I've read uh, I've read all of them. I mean, I I, uh, I I see I see all the books there right. and stuff. Oh, oh my god, you're, you're, you're an editor there. That's... Well, I'm okay. I'm sort of an editor. Matt, bless his heart, gave me the title of story editor, but I'm not really an editor. Matt was just being generous. What I do is I talk to people about story while I'm there. Uh, if people have questions about storytelling, I answer them. But I wouldn't consider myself an editor, you know. Like, there are editors of comics, and I am not one of them uh, in that capacity. Like, I would not put myself in the same level of, like, a Karen Berger, you know, or a Shelley Bond or Heather Antos or, you know, Molly Mahan, Jamie Rich. Like, those are editors. Chris Robinson over at Marvel, he's an editor. I'm a guy <laughs> that will talk to you about your story. <laughs> That's different, you know. So I'm I'm a writer that talks to uh, people at Talk Cow about their stories, but I I'm not an editor, uh, really. Um, and I, I only bring up that distinction because I have tremendous respect for people that do actually edit comic books. Um, okay. It is its own kind of separate thing, you know. So uh, I uh, I have to give deference with deference is due to the folks that uh, are are you know card carrying, battle tested star possessing editors out there um, because they do a fantastic job in their own right. But, yeah, uh, I do read everything that comes through Top Cow, sure. You know what? Out of all the questions I asked, I think that was a dumb question. <laughs> so, no, no, it's not dumb. No, it's a great question, actually, because it allows me to, to make that distinction uh, and talk about it, which is, which is excellent. There are no bad questions, only bad answers. So um, no, hopefully I've given good answers. The only reason I had brought it up because that – there was one panel where I, I just kind of raised my eyebrows, like, "Whoa, this is this is ridiculous." Was when that truck pulls up and the mirror comes right. That was ridiculous. I was like, "Whoa!" So this that's not only smart, but that is terrifying. Yeah, no, it's great. No, Zach's a really talented guy. Um, uh, you know, he's really passionate about comics too. So Zach Kaplan is a name that you should remember because he's going to be around for a while. And he's doing good stuff. Yeah, but this is his first comic book, right? It is. It is. This is his first. I mean, you know, he he kind of really got a got a good look at comics, man. I mean, he starts off comics with the original series. Not many people get to do that. Um, yeah. But he's doing a great job with the clips. Yeah, I mean, top top cow. I mean, uh, Think Tank was my first when I really got back into comics. Think Tank was the first indie comic. That I picked up, and I really got me going to read other indie comics, and then from there I, I became a uh, what I called a Matt follower. So pretty much. Oh, right on. And then that led me to uh, Postal, and and then your uh, you know your run on it so far, and God, I love it. <laughs> I was just when I was uh, 
I was telling a guy that was here in my office, you know, that was going to schedule to interview you. I started telling one of the other guys about Postal and and kind of pre, kind of kind of preaching the book and uh, taking him over. I'm probably I'm going to download the PDF for him because I know that at popcow.com you get you read the first one, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's up there. I think for yeah, for folks that are curious about Postal, I mean, you can go to popcow.com and you can read the first uh, issue for free and. Um, uh, there might be something up on Comicsology too. It might be part of Comicsology that subscription service. I'm not sure, but if folks want to check it out, now's a good time. Uh, there was a sale on Postal stuff. I don't know if it's still going on, but that that was out there. But yeah, if you're a uh check check that out. You can find an issue of Postal uh, up there. You can read. And I will be at Long Beach Comic Con. If people want to come check me out there, um, I'll be the bald guy. And um, yeah. I guess that's pretty much it. Yeah. Well, um, Brian, thank you for your time. And also, well, thank you. Thank you for Postal. It's it's my it's one of my favorite books. All right. Well, I, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, and, yeah, you know, if you want to talk about comic book stuff, reach out to me anytime. We'll schedule a call. And the next time, I won't have to stop the call in the middle to go take care of stuff. <laughs> no. Sorry about that. Right. Okay. I, I'm just very excited that I, I got to, you know, talk to you for a little bit. It's not – it's not every day that you get to talk to one of your favorite writers at the moment. So. Oh, right on. Um, well, cool. I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, so, you know, find me on social media. Uh, everything is my name, Brian Edward Hill, because I'm not that creative when it comes to social media. That's, <laughs> so, that's fine. It makes me I have a cute name. You just Google me and all my stuff comes up, and you can, you can holler at me uh, anytime, guys. Okay, so um, more than likely, I'm actually going to hold on to this until Monday because sure. uh, it, it seems like it's Labor Day. No one's reading the Internet. Everyone's out there barbecuing. Yeah, our numbers show that for whatever reason, as soon as people get into their offices, that's when they, they, they hit all the websites. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, definitely don't worry about it until Monday, Tuesday, for sure. Yeah, okay. Well, uh, you have a great Labor Day weekend. You and, too. Uh, and then I guess I'll see you at Long Beach. All right, man. Have a good weekend. Have a safe weekend. And I'll see you at Thanks. Long Beach. Thanks. All right. Take care. Bye. All right.